Welcome to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. Today, I have Andrew Roth with me. Andrew, um, welcome to my my podcast. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you being on. Thank you, Stephanie. Really appreciate that chance. Welcome. Welcome. And um, you have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of wisdom, and I'm excited. But let me introduce, let tell you a little bit about who he is. Andrew is a Torah teacher an author, the founder of One Faith, One People Ministries. He is also a Bible translator, and he specializes in Hebrew and Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus, right? Language of Jesus and the disciples at that time. So um, welcome. I appreciate what you're going to say. I, I, you're a great teacher. From I've read some of your articles, the, your website. You even have a Bible translation in Aramaic. Am I correct about that? Yes, yes. And I'm happy to tell you that I've actually got a new version of that translation that hopefully will be out early in 2024. But in 2008, I came out with my first one, which was called the Aramaic English New Testament. It went through five editions. And then uh, I got much better manuscripts than I had before. And I got a whole bunch of favor from God about what he wanted me to do second time around and i'm happy to say that we're working through getting that out to the public in a number of months so yes awesome. yes because i did look online and i went and i saw that it wasn't there so i i remembered that you had said you were um updating or putting out a new edition so that's yeah. awesome yeah. um so you are a jewish believer in messiah and you call um i think you said that you call yourself an Nazarene Jew. That's right. Nazarene. Yes. Nazarene. And that's what Paul called himself. I mean, uh, if you recall in Acts chapter 24, mm-hmm. um, Paul is getting interviewed by uh, th- these people that want to lock him up and, and mm-hmm. trouble for him. And it's the accusing prosecutor who says, I, I, this man is a troublemaker, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Mm-hmm. And And Paul answers, particularly in verses 12 through 14 of Acts 24, he explains exactly what being a Nazarene is. And it is the same exact definition that I follow today, and and, as do everyone that I I teach to. So you can you can look that up. I can I can read some of it to you. I just would have to, you know, need a second to grab it if you want. But. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, and okay. I will just, while you're doing that, my understanding is the Nazarenes were the first kind of Messiah-believing section yes. or sect of the Jewish people. And so the first, what we might call synagogue, first church that rep- that represented the Messiah were the Nazarenes. That's and right. it's interesting because I, um, I spent many, many years in a Nazarene church and um, loved it, loved it there. And so um, I got to tell uh, that pastor once I said, you know, the, the first church for Nazarenes, he goes, yes, I did. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically we, you know, the, the original headquarters for what we would call the church was Jerusalem. Right. If you look in, particularly in Acts 15, where you have it being headed by Yeshua's stepbrother, Jesus' stepbrother, whom you guys may call James. We call him Yaakov, Jacob. That's Mm -hmm. that's his real name. 
Yaakov Hasadik, Jacob the righteous. And Jacob would, uh, Yaakov would issue rulings that were binding on both Jewish and Gentile believers. They were all under his command. So this was actually the first mother church. Rome hadn't even been started yet. You know, and it's going to take another 30 years for Rome to uh, begin to assert herself. But even when she does, uh, there are other churches like in Syrian Antioch and in Caesarea and in some other places that are more ancient than the Roman church. So let me read to you this definition that is in Acts 24, 14 through 15. This is how Paul describes being a Nazarene. He says, but this indeed I acknowledge that in the same doctrine of which they speak, I serve Elohim, the God of my fathers, believing in all the things that are written in the Torah and in the prophets. And I have a hope in God, Elohim, which they themselves also expect, meaning the Jews around Paul have the same hope that Paul does, uh, that there is to be a resurrection of the dead, both of the righteous and the wicked. That is my faith in the pages of the New Testament right there. So century church, if you will. And that's very interesting because because most there's there's a whole lot of people within the churches as we know it that believe that Paul gave up the Torah, that Paul gave up his Jewish heritage. To which I would Messiah. Yeah, to which I would ask, where's the proof? Because would you quote, if you thought a source was obsolete and irrelevant, would you quote from it 200 plus times? Which is, right. that's, that's what Paul does. Uh, every part of his letters, every single letter uh, is quoting Torah or quoting from the prophets. And this is because he was taught by the risen Savior. And it is Yeshua, Jesus, who said that he did not come to destroy the Torah or the prophets but to give them proper understanding. Mm-hmm. And as long as heaven and earth are still here, not one jot will, dr- will drop out of the Torah or the prophets until everything is accomplished. And I would respectfully submit the heaven and the earth have not disappeared and everything has not been accomplished. So right. this is where we come from in the Nazarene way, uh, in a loving way to say, this is what, you're, this is what our, our common master said you know, because there have been times when I've had to say, you know, it's not so much an Old Testament issue now, mm. New Testament issue, that when Yeshua, Jesus, tells people to, to follow the Torah, to keep the feast, to understand that he doesn't change ever, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8, and to understand that he did all those things in feast keeping and in dietary laws and in all of the other things that marked him as a Jew, that if he was Jewish then, since he doesn't change, he's Jewish now. Mm-hmm. And if he was Torah observant, then he's Torah observant now. And so this is this is where we come in to walk gently through the way that Yeshua, the way that Jesus walked. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big deal to me in understanding that Jesus, Yeshua, was was still Jewish and he's returning as a Jewish king. Um, he's, right. he's not returning as a, a, a Christian, um, a Gentile, uh, right. anything but a Jewish king. 
And I think that when I started on my journey to understand the Jewishness of scripture and the Jewishness of Jesus is the way I put it, that that's what opened my eyes and, and really said, well, if he still, if he came as a Jewish baby, a Jewish boy and grew up into a Jewish man, he didn't change. He died as a Jewish king and he returns as a Jewish king. Then right. he didn't do away with anything that I guess that's the, the path I had to understand. And the Lord was leading me, the Holy spirit leading me through that path and that journey. Um, because I think we just kind of, I, I talked to a friend who was also um, a Torah teacher, but she was like, well, we we kind of redress him and we take off all of his high priestly garments mm-hmm. and we replace this with some Gentile jeans and T-shirt, you know, or something like that. Exactly. So, so when we do that, we're taking away his Jewishness. And um, and and so I, I think it's just getting it back into perspective. And and I have another question as far as, you know, often we say, um, well, he fulfilled the law and the mm-hmm. prophets as right. a way to say that he did away with it because he fulfilled it. So it's no longer, it's no longer a thing. It's no longer a part of our belief system. Right, so right. How, how would you address that? Well, I would address it by simply reading Matthew five in context, you know, 17 through 20. Uh, he says, I did not come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. So why would fulfill mean the very thing that he said he did not come to do? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like saying, I didn't come to steal from you, but I'll rob you instead. I mm. mean, does that even make sense? Right. So the, the, it is clear in both Greek and Aramaic, the grammatical construction of those lines uh, is saying it's what we call a, a, a disjunctive, which means or. I did not come to do this or to do or to do that. Okay. And that puts it in opposition. Therefore, the two sides of that sentence cannot be referring to the same thing. I mean, it's just very, very basic grammar. Right. So what did he come to do then? To fulfill, if you look, if you just go on any good Christian website like crosswalk.com or Blue Letter Bible or any of these that allow you to search. Uh, you know, the words in the Bible. And it can be translation you want. doesn't have to be mine. Uh, and you put in the, the, the word fulfill. And what you will find is in 90 times out of 10, it is the words of the prophets that are fulfilled. Mm. Which is to say, when Hosea said, out of Egypt, I will call my son, right? Mm. That was fulfilled when when Jesus and his family went to Egypt and then came back to Galilee a couple of years later. So fulfill means to properly understand. And instead of saying fulfilled, I would recommend that everyone listening to this would simply switch the wording around. Fill full. Mm. Fill full with proper understanding, with scriptural context of what is actually being said. So the way I would translate it, and I can do it in Greek and in Aramaic, would be to simply say, I did not come to destroy the Torah or the prophets, but to fill them up with proper understanding. Mm -hmm. 
That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So that's how I would answer that. That's excellent. Thank you. Sure. So you want to hit on the fact that you're a Bible translator. You've already kind of shown us parts of that, but you've actually talk about a lot of things in translating. You and I, before we even aired this, we talked about um, Simon the leper. Mm -hmm. We had to talk about Trinity, the Trinity. We've also talked about Abraham and those 10 generations. And and those are all very cool subjects to me that um, to understand. And so if you wouldn't mind just hitting on some of those things that um, how, how it changed, because I think, to even back up a little bit more, that you said that you were struggling as an early believer, if I remember, yes. with the things that you read because it didn't line up with what you knew about Messiah. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, or, a very powerful moment in my life that I, I, I became convicted that Yeshua was the Messiah when I was 20 years old, when I was in college. Uh, and I was head of the Jewish student union group called uh, Hillel. Uh, but when I talked to Christians and saw what they were doing, um, it didn't make sense to me. It wasn't like I was trying to be condemning or picky or snobby or, or anything. But I found that some of the things that were happening contradicted the Torah. And if I was going to go back to my family and say, I have found the Messiah, I have found the one whom the Torah, Deuteronomy 18, has predicted, the, the one who is like Moses, the one whom you must listen to. And they say, they're going to say to me, and they did, by the way, show me how he kept the Torah. Show me the Messiah as a Jew. And I if I went by the way of, say, King James or NIV or NASB or any of these popular translations, word stuff, then I couldn't present any credible proof to them in English. I really couldn't. So you brought up the, the situation with Matthew 26, which any translation from Greek sources, no matter what it is, is going to say, and while Yeshua, Jesus, was dining in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came bearing an alabaster jar of perfume, to which I respond, impossible. If I was on the anti-Jesus side as a Jewish person, I would poke holes in this with glee and say, you see, Matthew doesn't even know that Leviticus 13 says lepers can't own houses. They, they have to, to live in a leper colony. And if they do go into public, they have to cover their mouth and, and shout unclean, unclean. So how is this leper having a dinner party and all the Jews of this of the locality attend, and no complaints. I mean, that's simply impossible. Okay, someone is going to point out that you're breaking Torah. It's just the way first-century Judaism is. Mm-hmm. We see that in great evidence with the way the Pharisees deal with other issues with Yeshua or with Paul. So it turned out that the problem was a word got mistranslated into Greek, an Aramaic word, which had two meanings, and the Greek took the wrong one. The primary meaning of this word in Aramaic, garaba, is jar maker or potter, okay? Uh, Whereas 
it's spelled the same and sounds very similar to another Aramaic word, which means leper. Mm. So I think it makes a lot more sense that a jar maker gives Yeshua a jar or has his servant girl give him a jar to be technically precise than to suggest that you have this big Martha Stewart event and nobody says a word. Um, right. And, 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 and I've talked this to Christian pastors and one of them, this was many years ago, said, well, what if Jesus healed this leper, but he was simply known as Simon the leper? Wouldn't that explain the reading? To which I said, no, it wouldn't. And he asked me why. And I said, because re- have you read in the Torah how lepers are treated, what they have to go through? It's a, a massively disruptive, mm-hmm. inconvenient process. And they cannot work in Israel if they are known as a leper. So if you had a leper who was cured and pronounced clean by the priest, and you'll recall, Jesus says that a lot. Go show yourselves to right. the priests and give them the offering that is appropriate. Because that was the only way to get certified that you weren't a leper anymore. If you then came by and said, no, you're still a leper. Then what's going to happen is he's going to take you to court because mm-hmm. you're telling him he cannot legally work or earn a living in Israel. He's not going to like that very much, None, nor would the apostles, nor would the writers of the New Testament have liked that very much. So that can't be what it said. And he wouldn't want to be known as a leper. Anymore. Exactly. No, he wouldn't. You know, what What has happened is that there is a a, a little note in the Gospel of John that after Lazarus, whose real name is Eliezer, by the way, uh, which means God is my help, and mm-hmm. God, he was his help. Um, after Eliezer, Lazarus, was risen from the dead, he held a feast to celebrate his return to life. Mm. So this same Christian pastor then asked me, well, Andrew, maybe uh, it was like that. Maybe you know, the leper wanted to celebrate being clean, to which I would simply repeat the answer I just gave. And to that, I would add, if you have to go outside the text to explain the text, that is not proper biblical scholarship. That's not what any good Jewish or Christian scholar is taught to do. It's what we call eisegesis, which means to come from outside, Mm. or eisegesis, as opposed to exegesis, which means to go from inside the text out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if, if you're not doing exegesis, you're not really studying the word of God. I'm sorry. Uh, you, you may enjoy that. It may be somehow spiritually edifying for you, but it's not proper process. And that's according to both Jewish and Christian. Uh, mm-hmm. this, is not, this is not something just coming from one side of the spectrum to the other. It's it's basically explaining scripture with scripture. Yeah, that's that's basically what that's what it, the definition, I guess, would be in a sense. But yeah, and the yeah. rabbis had a lot of great rules about that. Um, that you start with the simple, plain meaning of the text. Mm-hmm. Anything that comes from the higher, so-called higher levels, which are sometimes referred to as uh, you know uh, getting uh, a hint, doing a comparison of the terms or going to the secret level, Mm -hmm. um, if any part of that disagrees with the plain meaning of the text, you have to throw it out. 
And I think that's a pretty good rule. Mm-hmm. And another one is what they call Gezira Shavah, which means equivalent expressions, where you look for all the places where a particular phrase occurs in the scripture and you build your definition from two or more verses of that same concept to make sure you're covering the full spectrum of application of that particular term. Mm-hmm. We're often taught Greek hermeneutics, but we're not taught Hebrew hermeneutics. And I mm-hmm. think what you're explaining is the Hebrew side of explaining the text instead of just the Greek side. Exactly. But what I say, I think, applies pretty well to both. Mm-hmm. With Hebrew, you've got certain challenges that are almost, I won't say almost never, that's probably being a little harsh, but uh, that are often sort of not done uh, to, to the degree that each individual Hebrew word in Aramaic is Hebrew sister language. It's 95% similar to Hebrew. So what applies to Hebrew applies to Aramaic. They, an individual word may have 10 different meanings. Mm-hmm. And it is sometimes the case from my own research as a translator that more than one meaning of, of the same word in the same space is intended because you're trying to make a wider spiritual point or make a wordplay or connections between mm-hmm. this meaning of that word and another meaning of that word. Right. You know, uh, like, for like, uh, give you an example from Spanish about what I, what, you know, what I mean. Uh, in Spanish, the words to vote and the words to kick out are very, very close. One is votar. Another one is botar, to give the boot, to kick out. And so it's a kind of a joke that when you go to vote, you're kind of kicking out the guys you don't like, you know, mm. it, 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 that's. That, that's kind of simplistic, but that's an accurate way of explaining how multiple meanings or, or, or words that sound similar, what we call mm-hmm. hymns, uh, can be used to make a wider point because you are tapping into more than one application of that exact word. And, right. and if you've got 10 different meanings for a Hebrew word, you've got a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. In Greek, like English, you have a lot of subtle changes between words that, you know, I can walk, I can amble, I can stride, you know, I, I can do all those things. They're still walking. You, right. you see what I'm saying? So yes, let have the opposite trend where you might have 10 different words with an overall meaning, mm-hmm. subtle mm-hmm. differences. So it's the opposite problem. So imagine trying to take, a word from Semitic language, which has an individual word that has 10 meanings and put it into a language where you have 10 words per one meaning. And you can see what the challenge is to bring that into English. Right. Translators work is never done. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's a, um, because I, I've also heard that when you're talking about the biblical languages, that, Greek had a very large vocabulary and I, and I couldn't even tell you how many words, but let's say it was over a hundred thousand at that time. I don't know, but maybe yeah. that's a good place to start. But, but in comparison, Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew had 8,000 words. Yeah. And so there was quite a difference in the amount of words that they had to choose from. Yes. And 
So, so one word had, like you said, 10 meanings or 10 words to describe it. And, you know, or yeah. I guess that's the Greek side, but you know, so it was hard. It's even hard to this day, like you said, to exactly. Keep that. You know, and the thing is for me, although, you know, when I was younger, I had, you know, and I'm all gung ho and I'm all on fire for, Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me this tool to understand your word and all this sort of stuff. I'm going to slay the Greek dragon of Constantine or something like that. Uh, I've had to mellow with age. And uh, uh, I realized that a lot of the problems I saw in the Greek were not the Greek's fault. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the way certain Christians were teaching the Greek. I'll give you an an example. Um, If you ask any Greek New Testament scholar, what's the name of the dialect? of the Greek New Testament, they will say koine, which means mm-hmm. common, except it's not common. The New Testament was written by Jews. Jews are 5% of the global Greek-speaking population. And they have modified the Greek for their special purposes as Jews in a way that 95% of those who are pagan they would not modify the Greek language that way. So I'll give you an example. In Hebrew, one of the feasts is called Shavuot, Mm -hmm. which is got a lot of different names, but one of them is the the English translation is Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. But when you look that word up in Greek, it doesn't, it isn't the Greek term Feast of Weeks. It's Pentecostos. Mm which means 50 or 50 days. So the Greek is not giving you the Greek equivalent of the name of the feast, but the Greek is telling you how to keep it, i.e. for 50 days. Mm -hmm. And so nowhere else in the world does Greek language do that. Does it modify things for Jewish application? And since, as I said, the Jews are 5% of the population of the people who speak Greek, you can call that Greek anything you want, but you cannot call it common. Mm-hmm. Because, because the Feast of Weeks is seven weeks right? seven days. Plus, plus the, the 50th. Yeah, so it, it's Feast of Weeks kind of comes out to 49, just like um, the Jubilee, but then it's celebrated on the the 50th, I guess. Well, well it, it, you see, the thing is, seven is sacred. So mm-hmm. you can think of like a seven times seven of 49 is double sacred. It's seven to the second power. But in both cases, it's the, the purpose of the 49 is to sort of step away and point to 50. Okay. So that the, the jubilees are, you sanctify the 50th year, but you do it in the fall of the 49th year at Yom Kippur, at the Day of Atonement, you know, to just sum up Leviticus here, Leviticus 23. Um, And the same thing with respect to the Omer count. Uh, You know, you do your seven sevens and you've completed the sacred uh, number. Mm -hmm. Now the next day is going to be the feast. It's it as a seal on top of a beautiful, perfect thing. It is the seal uh, on top of the structure, which is 49. All right. It completes, the, your ceiling is on the 50th in both cases. Okay. Yeah, that makes okay. a lot of sense. Yeah. 
I know people sometimes go back and try to paper over this thing and go, well, it's 49, but it's essentially 50, or the 49 is sort of 50. And I'm like, and no, I think we need to mm-hmm. drill down and see what the, see what the, the Bible says. And that's what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And it can get very confusing when you're brought up in the church and you have pastors who don't quite understand it either, but they're explaining it the way maybe they've been taught. And it's not to put anybody down. No, no, not it's, at all. It's stuff that is lost in translation, so to speak. Literally, and, yes. Yeah. And it also lost in application. Because mm-hmm. like I said, like with the Greek, with the Pentecost and stuff like that, uh if someone didn't understand that your Omer count was 49 days and that your the 50th day was the high Sabbath, that's not the Greek's fault. The Greek already told you it was 50. But right. it's the way that it's being taught, that is the problem. So I kind of had to repent. And I had to imagine the Greek language as like a as like a person. Go, I'm really sorry. I gave you a very hard time in the early 2000s, but I realize it's not all your fault. Mm-hmm. But I will still say that the Greek needs the Aramaic way more than the Aramaic needs the Greek, that the the Aramaic comes alongside the Greek to explain what it really meant. Mm -hmm. And so when people read an Aramaic translation, uh, and it's not, you know, uh, whether it's mine or someone else's, uh, when they read an Aramaic translation, they go, yeah, that's what I thought the Greek meant. And 99 times out of 100, that's exactly the case. That's what the Greek meant. But it was not how it was taught. But if it doesn't have a witness to come alongside it, then people can have a field day and and exploit it. Right. Oh, yeah. I I get that. And I love the Greek New Testament for that. I do. You know, it's just that as a Jewish person following a Jewish Messiah who spoke a Jewish language, um, I know the Aramaic is going to be better for that reason alone. You know, as we talked about on the phone. Uh, You'll recall we talked about how uh, that for uh, Hindus, uh, their scriptures in Sanskrit, and that was the language they got their faith. For Muslims, it's in Arabic. That's where they got their faith. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go down the line of all the world religions. And if the Greek scholars are correct, then Christianity, which is the biggest faith on the planet right now, it's... 2 billion people that Christianity's original scriptures are in a language other than what their founder actually spoke. And that just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I love Aramaic, but you won't hear me writing my, my, uh, my letters or my articles in Aramaic because English is my first language. Right. Right. It's not I understand. what they did. Right. Wow. Yeah, lots of things there. A lot of good points because I think it's important to understand there's lots of things. So like when I when I hold up the Bible, you know, the scriptures and and I said, you know, it's 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 God's word, but yet there is a difference between God's word and scripture. God's word is perfect. It's an error and in 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 it's what he said, but scripture's written by men, so there's going to be misunderstandings there's going to be things that are taken from the wrong you know words that are used incorrectly or however you'd like to put that it's it's not perfect like god's word is perfect so i think you have to understand 
that it's not we don't make an idol out of this book right i read one of your articles about trinity about the trinity right. um, as we call it the trinity um and you had some issues with that from a, a hebraic point of view so yes. could you dive into that for us yes um you see first thing i will say is i am not stripping yeshua jesus of his power or his status. So let's get that out of the way. Uh, Yeshua is clearly not just a man. But Yeshua is not his father either. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. Okay. Mm. Um, Yeshua is the creative word that comes out of the mouth of God. And creates the universe. Through his hands as John says. Through Yeshua's hands everything was made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. I'm just quoting what he says. In John 10, verse 30, Yeshua says, I and my father are one. But he doesn't stop being Yeshua the man. He remains who he is. Okay, Mm -hmm. And this is why in Matthew, when he says, not my will, your will, Heavenly Father, be done. That's another area where he's saying, you know what? This is the there's the will of Yeshua and the will of his father. They are in agreement, but they're not the same thing. And so Trinity is a situation where it leads to a false assumption or a false conclusion because Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Okay. And one is not three. And three is not one. But there is a way to understand being derived from the Father without being the Father. Okay? Because just think of any father and son. The son had to come out from the Father. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeshua is doing the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven and all of that, he's not talking to himself. He's talking to his Father who is in heaven. Right? And when Yeshua or Jesus is dying on the cross, how could God the Father die on the cross and the universe still keep running? How can God die at all? So we need to, we need to really understand these, these issues. I'm not saying that Yeshua isn't divine. I'm not saying that Yeshua doesn't have eternal origins. He does. I'm not saying that he isn't the most powerful and most righteous human being who has ever walked the face of the earth, because he is. You know, I did a teaching that that showed Yeshua appearing as an angel 24 times mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, literally from Genesis to Zechariah. Okay, is 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 Yeshua who is not named who is doing things in God's name that no other angel could do on his own independent authority. And that means not a man, but you cannot make him into a separate God either because that violates the core of what the Bible says, you see. And because Christianity in the West was birthed in pagan Rome, they inherited this terminology and the, the 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 issue is not so much the word trinity or triunity it's persons of the trinity persons plural persona in latin as opposed to divine aspects divine attributes 
And I think that if we're going to talk about a Jewish Messiah, we better be able to back up everything we say from the Hebrew Bible. Okay. And Mm -hmm. what Isaiah tells us, for example, in his 11th chapter is what I call the Godhead chapter. Because in that chapter, Isaiah names six spirits and they are all the one God. But there are six of them. Now, if I count the Messiah himself, there's seven. Okay. And mm-hmm. They're all called by the Father's name, Yahweh. And yet no one is calling Isaiah a pagan and saying, you're believing in six gods. Because somehow they understood that these were attributes and not persons. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor that I've used and that you told me is helpful for you, I'll, I'll use again and say one tree, three branches. First branch is the Father. The second branch is the Son. The third branch is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is simply another name for the Father. Mm-hmm. And that's in Psalm 51, 10 through 11, and Isaiah 63, 10 through 11. It's always his Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so when you unpack all that, it's what I call divine majestic unity between the Father and the Son, without the Son being the Father, you know. And and so there's a lot of divinity in that, but it's simply not taking the form of traditional church, church teaching. And that's why I don't want to say triunity either, mm-hmm. because you're, all you're doing is throwing in a you. Uh, you, you, know, you haven't really, did you explain anything? that I just explained for over, over the last several minutes to get down to the, the bedrock of what the scripture is talking about. And if I can't prove it directly from the scripture, I wouldn't say it at all. So hopefully that helps. Yes, it does. And you made me think of, and I think it's first Corinthians 10. No, maybe it's, sorry, I forget, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of the scripture, maybe it's 15, but, um, when it it says that it's talking about the end days, the end times and how Jesus will hand everything back to the father, like given authority for this amount of time. And then he turns around and he becomes subject to the one to the father. He becomes subject to the father and he hands everything back over to him. Do you know where I'm talking? I've read it. I think that is, I think that's more like 15 or 16. That's right towards the end. I believe. Yes. I thought, I think it is like 15, but Uh, you know, like after you get all this, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power Mm -hmm. and in corruption is raised in, you know, uh, and so on. Sown in corruption, raised in in corruption. I think it's after. Yes, Exactly. You know, uh, and, and, and the thing is, is that we need to understand that Yeshua said that he and his father are one, John 1030, right? He he doesn't say that I am my father. He says, I and my father are one. Um, so they are connected, but they are still two distinct beings. Mm -hmm. It's very important to, to, that's coming right out of his mouth. I and mean, he's giving that speech at Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. It's kind of important. Uh, and so we have to take his words uh, in the best context that we can and see that he never violates his father's word ever. Mm-hmm. I like the way that you uh, differentiated between the word of God and the scripture. 
And I would simply add to that, which I agree with, is I think Father Yah wants us to extend to extend significant efforts to understand his word. So as man struggles to uh, live up to the standards of the divine uh, and, and try to express infinity in finite language and finite capacity, uh, yeah, there's going to be challenges. But David panted after the word of God. You know, so and, and he was praised and loved for panting after the word of God. And I would submit that, you know, mm-hmm. if it work mm-hmm. for him, it'll probably work for us, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. So. I just mean that the way I think it was very interesting because the scriptures, as we know it within this book, we call the Bible are perishable. They burn up, they burn up. We can't read it anymore. But the word of God is what we hide in our heart. It's what we have memorized. It's what we hear. It's what we know. The grass, the grass is destroyed and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Right, Peter. Yeah. yeah. And also Psalms. Yes, it comes from there. Yeah. <laughs> and I did find that it's, it's, you're right. It is First Corinthians 15. I just didn't go far enough. It It starts in about, verse 20 and um and there is where it says that you know he then becomes subject himself to god who subjected everything to him so that god may be everything in everyone and and i think it's a beautiful passage and explains so well that how they're separate how they're two but they they work as one um at times as well so um, if that's correct, but yeah, I think that's correct. I like the, the way I like to think about it is what I call the cycle of the word. In the beginning, there was the word, right? But then the word was made flesh. And what we learn, particularly in Colossians two, uh, it and also Colossians one and Colossians two rather, is that Yeshua was in highest heaven because he says in John, no one has ever truly seen the Father except for the Son of Man who came out of heaven. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Moses didn't really see the father. He saw a manifestation of the father, but he didn't see him. Nobody has seen him except for the son who came down from what I would call highest heaven. Right. Mm. Now, when that happens, according to Colossians one and Colossians two, he empties out his majesty, his divine majesty out to become mortal. Okay. So that he can be killed. But in addition to inheriting the capability of being killed, he has to voluntarily decide that he's going to allow himself to be killed because mm. he could still call down those 12 legions of angels, even in fleshy form. Right. And, and so when he uh, he resurrects, he appears for 40 days and he ascends up to the father to become one with the father. Mm-hmm. This is what we know. When he comes out of that ascension cloud, which he does in Revelation 19, verse 13, he's called the word. Mm. This is very significant because what it means is when he came back to his father, he became the word again. So that when he got out of that cloud, he's called the word. You see, the other thing I'll say real quick, and I know we're probably running low on time, is that Think about your breath on a cold day. Mm. Breath that you see came out of you. Therefore, it is you, right? Right. Since you see it separate, it's also next to you at the same time. Right. Mm. There's its origin, and then there is its location. 
It's the same thing between the Father and the Son. That, you know, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with Elohim, with God, and the Word was God. Both are true. And then it's only a matter of where does the Word go? When does it come back? How does it cycle around? And that, that will give you a much more accurate vision of what Godhead really is. Right. That's very good. Thank you for explaining that. And you've been very helpful, I think, explaining um, both by your articles that I've read and just talking with you today. It's been very helpful. And I and I hope that um, our listeners and I will put your information on the show notes Thank so you. they can find your um your website and your website does have a member fee, but there are some free things on there that they could go and look at. And a lot of free things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some all videos. these teachings are free and special teachings throughout the year that I do a ton of them. There's four of them, three or four of them on the homepage. Mm-hmm. Well, myth conceptions of Luke and Corinius, uh, Yeshua and the double witness pattern about passion week, uh, the, there's a study on the temple, all the, the star Bethlehem, right? The star Bethlehem, something. which is my favorite right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Production values are so high on that that I'm just floored by it. So all of those are free. Any Passover or Tabernacles or Purim, all free. Um, and and yes, uh, for folks that want to be members, I've not raised my prices since the ministry began more than a decade ago. Uh, it's nine ninety five a month. Or sixty nine ninety five a year, uh, so uh, I've tried to make it as affordable as I possibly can. But I also make myself accessible to my members when they have their Bible questions. My my members come first, and I make sure I I, I answer their questions personally and directly. So that's awesome. Yes. Oh well, thank you, thank you so much. And I know there was so much more we could talk about <laughs> that we just ran out of time, but. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate your time here today with me. And um, and if anybody wants to get in touch with you, then I know you're on Facebook as well. And yes. You can go to your website. So Right. And, uh, you know, there's a ministry email, which is not on the website. But if you want to dialogue with me, it's onefaithandrew at gmail.com. And that's O-N-E-F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-W at gmail.com. That's the ministry email. And, and, and what I typically do is when I get questions, if I have like a special teaching that covers their question, I'll send them the link, you know, they can get a feel for how I teach. Um, And depending upon what their needs are, you know, uh, I'll either, you know, help them when I can one-on-one, but of course I'm very busy uh, or I will encourage them to join because I know for a fact mm-hmm. I'm going to be dealing with that question in a, at a very deep, detailed level uh, for the stuff that the members alone can access. So okay. trying my best to minister to those folks uh, and to get them to where they're going to get the most benefit. Okay, so it was one faith, Andrew. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll add that to the show notes. Yeah. That way it's there. All right. Well, thank you very much and have an awesome week. You too. Thank you very much for your time.
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find me at graftedjewishroots.com. Please check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews, on my website. And I also have a Facebook page under the same name. Join me every Wednesday for a new episode of Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. Thank you for listening.